in practice. Patience. This is from the Connected Discourses, Volume 1. Of goals that culminate in one's own good is none better than patience. Perhaps you notice from time to time that practice can be challenging. Simply stopping, trying to gather our energy, our attention, to collect the mind and perhaps direct it toward paying attention to the breath, the body, the present moment. It can be challenging. It's often not so easy. We have a lifetime of habit to overcome, to really align ourselves in this way. Partly, it's just such a huge shift energetically to come into retreat, to settle down, to turn our attention inward. Patience is a key component in doing this practice. Patience is one of the ten paramis, or great perfections. So it's considered to be a very virtuous and beautiful mind state. The others are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And it's said that the perfection of all ten of these beautiful qualities leads to Buddhahood. Given what that would mean, the perfection of all ten of those qualities, I've always been incredibly grateful that patience is on the list. I think it's important to keep in mind that patience is something that we can cultivate in our practice and in our lives. Sometimes we think that it's some kind of inherent quality, and we either have it or we don't. But it's not true. Patience is something that can be practiced and developed, just like mindfulness. I once heard about this documentary show about the disease of Alzheimer's. And there was a man on the show who was taking care of his wife. They were both elderly, and she was in a quite advanced stage of the, the disease. So he had to, over the course of their day, repeat things to her over and over and perform 
the same tasks for her again, day after day. And when he was asked by the interviewer about how he could possibly do this and stay so um, balanced, so non-reactive with it, he looked kind of surprised. And he just looked over at his wife <clears throat> with so much love. And he said, this is my bride. This is my beautiful wife. In a certain way, in his eyes, in his love, she was still very much the girl that he had fallen in love with and married so many years before. And in a way, it seems as though his love really supported his patience, his ability to perform those same uh, tasks and chores day after day and stay present with that in an open way, in a connected way. Often, I think, with patience, we have the wrong idea about what it means. It may feel, in a way, like a kind of punishment, that something's unpleasant and difficult, and that we have to endure it, and that that requires us to draw on patience, a kind of grin-and-bear-it stance. But I don't think patience, true patience, is really about that kind of enduring. I believe it's much kinder than that, much more like that man who loved his wife. It's about relaxing, opening to our experience, being with what's there rather than reacting to something or denying it or waiting for it to change because we don't like it. With a patient heart, we relax into it. We open to what's happening, to what's presenting itself, taking an interest in it, investigating, perhaps. So we're receptive to our experience rather than clenching our way through it. Inherent to, in patience, to my understanding, is a quality of kindness. I think about the way we are patient when we're at our best with small children, or perhaps if you're an animal lover, with your pet. We accept them and their behavior for what it is. We don't deny it or fight it or try to change it. We're there. We're open to it. This is how they are. We're present. These qualities, that kind of presence and openness, seem to me to be certain expressions of kindness. 
And yet it is true that often patience is most needed when things are difficult, when things aren't going necessarily as we would hope that they might. But when a true patience is present, when we can call on that, we're able to stay with that difficult situation without resisting it, without complaining, without getting completely irritated, frustrated, swept away by our aversion. Being patient also does not mean that we're sort of passively putting up with things or waiting for something better to come along. In fact, we're very actively engaged with what is. We're present for it. And really, this is what our practice is about. Sharon Salzberg says in her book, A Heart as Wide as the World, true patience is constancy, the consistent willingness to use this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Consistent willingness. So a really basic example of this is whenever we open to pain or discomfort in our bodies in a skillful way as we practice. When we look deeply enough into it, when we pay enough attention to it, to see beyond or perhaps beneath the stories about it. And we see into the actual experience of what's difficult, what's painful. This is how wisdom develops. We see that the pain is not solid, it's not I. Or in our daily lives, if we have encounters with difficult or annoying people, rather than avoiding them or acting toward them out of aversion, can we open to that person to the best of our ability? Finding a place where we might connect. This takes patience to be with our irritation, our annoyance, and yet to try not to shut the person out of our hearts. I once drove a friend to a couple of different uh, medical appointments on the same day in a couple of different places. And waiting rooms are such a great place to check out (laughs) patients. So at the first place we went to, it was in a hospital waiting room. And my friend went in for her appointment. And I waited there with a couple, an elderly couple, who had arrived early for the wife's appointment. And they were now having to wait well past 
the time when they had been told they would be seen. And she was uncomfortable. She was in some degree of pain. But it was really striking because they were pretty cheerful, pretty open. They connected with me, they spoke with me, and they seemed interested and engaged with the other people that came and went from the room. So they were open to their environment. Occasionally they'd comment on the time, but they didn't seem to tighten up around it. They were patient. They were tolerant. And then the next appointment I took my friend to uh, was in a different office, a doctor's office. And again, the same situation happened where my friend went to her appointment with the doctor and I waited in the waiting room and another couple came in. And they weren't married. Uh, this was a, f a male friend bringing an older woman to her appointment as a favor. And in contrast to the first experience and that first couple at the hospital, this particular woman who was waiting for her appointment was immediately angry about having to wait. Pretty much as soon as the time for her appointment came and she wasn't immediately seen. She was not able to tolerate being there. And I'm sure there were plenty of reasons why. I'm not sharing this in a judgmental way, but it was striking, the contrast. She felt personally offended by waiting, even though, as it turned out, her wait didn't end up being very long. It was as though she was um, preconditioned for that experience, you know, so as soon as that minute happened, she was uncomfortable. And what was also striking was the difference in her overall demeanor. She couldn't relax into being there. And she would look away when our eyes happened to meet. It was really striking. And I point out, I bring, to, uh, bring these two stories to you because we are like both of those examples at different times, I would venture a guess. Sometimes we're present, open, connected, and we can be patient with what's happening. Other times we're reacting to something that we don't like. It can be interesting to notice, can be a real teaching in it. So if you find yourself contracting at any point while you're on retreat or in your life at home, or beyond contracting in a full-blown reactive state. And here, you know, on retreat, sometimes that can come with thoughts such as, uh, maybe, you know, this really wasn't the wisest choice to be here for this amount of time. What was I thinking? If you notice that happening, thoughts like that, that energetic experience happening, it may be time to take a look 
at what's going on, what's actually going on, and to see if you can bring in some patience. Not because you should, but because it's a way to alleviate the suffering in that moment, the suffering of resistance to what's happening. One of my all-time favorite um, yogi notes that I received on a retreat that I was teaching next door at the retreat center. A little background was it was a Vipassana retreat, but we were offering one period of metta meditation practice guided each day. And I received this note that said, metta seems too syrupy sweet, Pollyanna, goody goody, I hate metta. There should be a separate room for it. (laughs) And then the yogi signed it, love. (laughs) And then their name. (laughs) I liked that note so much because of its honesty. It was really um, revealing, not only of that person's state in that moment, but certainly of states I have also been in. We can all feel like this at times. We hate this, whatever it is, that kind of intolerance. Meditation practice is a process of purification. And this means that at times, the very opposite of what we're trying to cultivate can come up. Can we open to that? Can we accept that? Can we be patient with that? In the dictionary, one of the definitions of patience is a willingness to suppress restlessness or annoyance in waiting. There are a couple of uh, problems with this way of thinking about patience in terms of what we're doing here. Neither suppression nor waiting is really helpful in meditation practice. So rather than suppressing difficult energies, for example, when they come up, it might be more useful to think in terms of restraint, that we don't act them out. Forbearance is an aspect of patience. And there are so many opportunities, both in life and on the cushion, to work with this, to practice it. On the most obvious level, when we come to a retreat, we practice restraint in terms of our activities. Things are greatly simplified. Yeah, we don't have all the normal things that we usually do. We let go of that. 
but also as different energies arise in our experience, it's generally not so useful to act them out. Imagine <laughs> what it would be like here <laughs> if that's what we were all doing. You know, potentially pretty chaotic at times. <clears throat> Even just the energy of restlessness when it arises in our experience. It's not so useful to really just go with it, to squirm and really act it out, shifting the body, attempting to get away from that unpleasant energy. It's very difficult to allow the mind to settle if we do this, difficult for any concentration to build. So we restrain from that movement and open to what's happening. <clears throat> and the same is true with irritation, frustration, annoyance, as that arises. Not so recommended to act it out. Not so useful. It's likely that you're familiar with the syndrome of yogi mind. And this is when just from being on retreat, being very quiet, very inward, the energy builds in the system and sensory experience is uh, greatly diminished, uh, we become quite sensitive. And then because of that sensitivity, the slightest little things can cause pretty big ripples in our minds and hearts. Maybe you've noticed this on occasion in your practice. Next door, at times when people have acted out some of these irritations or desires, um, We've called things like, uh, we've named them the window wars, the light wars, the temperature wars. So someone wants the windows open in the summer. Someone else doesn't. They get open, they get closed. Or the lights, you know, someone wants them on in the walking room at a certain hour. Some people don't. The lights on and off. You know, we've really had to make certain guidelines and rules not to do it that, you know, the staff will be in charge. It's just preferences, and it's not so useful to be acting them out. It's much more informative to pay attention to them arising, to come to know them, <clears throat> to understand them for what they are. On a subtler level, we practice restraint simply by being here, not exposed to all the different situations we're used to, so a kind of restraint of the senses. Sometimes we can experience this with, or sometimes I've experienced this with a tremendous sense of relief, not being bombarded by all of the input of daily life. And on a deeper level still, 
Restraint can be known in terms of letting go of our habitual ways, our habitual responses to things. So when we notice the desire to fantasize or daydream, and we choose not to go there, to come back into a mindful connection with the present moment, we're practicing restraint. But back to that definition about suppressing difficulties while waiting. I think it's not uncommon to associate waiting with patience. It's interesting to notice when we feel like we're waiting in our meditation practice. In meditation, waiting isn't really so helpful. Waiting means we're looking ahead, focused on something in the future. What does this mean about our relationship to the present and what's happening now? Again, from Sharon's book, she quotes her teacher, Munindra. He said, in meditation practice, time is not a factor. It is not something that is relevant in this process. Practice is timeless. And I remember a particular retreat where one of my teachers suggested that we experiment with practicing outside of time. He asked us to look at whether we were ever good enough within the conceptual framework of time, which is an interesting question. You can see how when we think about a future, we can always be better. We can't really open fully into being when we're caught up in becoming. Being present or becoming a better better meditator, one who might be present someday in the future. So if you notice that you're waiting in your meditation practice, you might just take a look and you might first see, what are you waiting for? And you might know, maybe you're waiting for calm or concentration. Maybe you're waiting for the bell. Maybe waiting for lunch. Try to use those times to wake up to the fact that you're not quite present with what's happening in that current, alive moment. There's no need to judge yourself or your practice. Simply see if you can reconnect at that point with what the present moment holds. Sometimes it might be reconnecting with waiting. Can you pay attention to that? Can you know that? Can you experience it? What is this? 
energy like of waiting? <coughs> Sometimes you might notice the energy of desire or expectation, feeling impatient for something to happen. Thoughts might arise such as, okay, I've been practicing for X many days or weeks or months or years. And where are the insights? Watch out for those times when expectations arise about your practice. When you feel you want it to be a certain way, it's a good clue that you might not be settling in to what's actually happening. And usually that's because we're not so happy with what's happening. When we practice letting go of expectations, both on and off the cushion, so much more is actually available to us because we're there for it. We're not looking ahead to some imaginary thing in the future. It's an interesting paradox, I think, in a way that we need to make an effort to be present. Because being present actually means stopping or letting go of everything that we do, that we usually do, that keeps us separate from our experience, from what's happening. So sometimes we think if we just practice hard enough, we'll get somewhere. And we can get imbalanced in terms of striving. In those times, we might remind ourselves there's no place to get to other than here, other than now. This requires a kind of faith, a kind of trust, at least, in the process that we're engaged in. These words are from Thomas Merton. Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all, or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. Trusting the process. This strikes me as a much kinder, more patient approach. Somewhere I read once that patience was referred to as being both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. What does this mean, the highest austerity? 
To me, it means that being patient may involve a kind of sacrifice. And at times, the sacrifice is on a relatively superficial level, like giving up the pleasures of daily life to be here practicing. And sometimes, the letting go that we do is on a much deeper level. We may need to let go of our habitual responses to ourselves, for example, or to others. We might find as we practice that we need to let go of the habit of seeking gratification in that which cannot provide it. Or the habit of seeing ourselves as limited or separate. This is deep work, deep practice. So patience as an austerity, but what about the highest form of devotion? Think about what it means to be devoted to something. We give ourselves fully to it. At times in practice, this might mean something different than what we think. Maybe we're not filled with peace and tranquility and joyful interest each moment throughout the day. So what keeps us going in those times? Devotion can seem kind of far-fetched at that point. This is a quotation from Louisa May Alcott that I find helpful. She said, Far away, there in the sunshine, are my highest aspirations. I may not reach them, but I can look up and see their beauty, believe in them, and try to follow where they lead. So sometimes, just bringing in as a reflection our aspiration, why it is that we're here, why it is that we practice. This can help. Particularly in the times when it's not so easy. And in my experience, there's plenty of those times in practice. Over the years of my practice, I've learned to kind of respect those times where it's not easy more than I used to. In a way, honoring or kind of bowing to the struggles that ensue as we try to align our hearts in this new way, in this different way. When our experience isn't what we wanted, what we hoped for, when the opposite is arising, when boredom or frustration or self-judgment or doubt visits, it can be kind of derailing or at least 
somewhat disheartening. <clears throat> we might take it all kind of personally and feel like we're not good at this or we're failing somehow at this thing, this practice that means so much to us. It takes a great patience at times like that to carry on. It may take just stopping if it's really intense, letting go of meditation techniques, relaxing, taking a walk outdoors, letting yourself be supported by nature, by beauty, finding your way back to balance in that way. Sometimes we can get so caught up <clears throat> in our various struggles that it's, it's difficult to see clearly what would be helpful, what's needed. Once on a self-retreat that I was doing, a little bird visited me and to me kind of illuminated this struggling and not being able to see what's needed. <clears throat> I was practicing for a month by myself in a small cabin in New York State. And one morning, <clears throat> a couple of weeks into my practice, I heard something scrambling inside the wood stove. At night, the fire would die down. <clears throat> so fortunately, the stove was cold when I heard this in the morning. And it was in the elbow of the stovepipe. So I knew some kind of creature, animal or bird, had come down the stovepipe and was lost in there, stuck in there. <clears throat> so first I tried to see what I could do to get the creature to come out of the stove. So I found a cardboard box that I'd brought some of my food supplies in, and I positioned it in front of the stove and opened the stove door into the box. And I kind of hoped that whoever it was that was in the stove would just jump out <laughs> into the box. <laughs> Um, that the box would be more appealing than being in the stove and that then I would let them out. <clears throat> but it didn't work. So eventually, I really didn't know what to do or how to handle it. So eventually I went for a short walk to an area where I knew that the owner of the cottage was working. And I found him and asked him if he could come help me. So he walked back with me and... He took care of it really quickly. It turned out that the kind of stove that this was had a, a sort of separate chamber on top. And you could lift the lid right off of that chamber and then see the opening to the stovepipe. So he just took the lid off. And there, sitting in the stovepipe opening, was this beautiful little bluebird. And he just reached out and took it in his hand with the perfect amount of pressure. He didn't hurt the bird, but he just grabbed it and walked outside onto the porch, opened his hand, and the bird flew off. It was wonderful to see that 
the bird was okay. <clears throat> and then he left. And I was a yogi two weeks into retreat, and all of this activity had been a bit uh, stimulating, to say the least. So I just sat down on a chair to kind of recover <laughs> from all of this activity of the morning. And as, as I sat there, he'd gone, it was maybe only 10 minutes after he'd gone, I heard the same sound again in the stove. I couldn't believe it. So this time, I thought I knew what to do. So I did what he did. I removed the, st the stovetop, and there was a second bluebird. The same one didn't come back, I'm sure of it. it. I think two had come down, but one was further back in the pipe the first time, and we didn't see it. So there was a second bluebird in the very same spot. But I wasn't quite as confident as the fellow was on the grab. So I kind of tentatively sort of reached out, you know, to gently touch the bird, and that didn't work, and the bird flew into the room. And then it was very painful as a yogi to watch as this bird struggled to free itself, where it flew around. It was a one-room cottage with a loft. It flew around the cottage, banging into the windows, trying to get outdoors. And it ended up going upstairs into the loft, and it had kind of banged itself into a sort of stupor. And it landed on my little altar near my sitting space up there. And so it was just sitting there, so I sat down near it, trying to figure out what to do, and watched as it sort of recovered. <laughs> I think I was recovering too. But once it sort of regained its equilibrium, it started flying again. There was one window at the end of the room upstairs, and it did this. I had opened that window wide when I went up there from the bottom. But the bird, rather than flying out, banged again into the top part of the window. But fortunately, not for long, because I could stand next to the window and just by putting my hand above the bird, encourage it to go down. And it did, and it flew out the window and it was okay. I was so struck with this. I mean, maybe it was yogi mind, <laughs> but it seemed to me very much like what happens sometimes in our practice, where we come up against something that seems so solid and so unworkable and so unforgiving, when all the while the opportunity to free ourselves is right there, like that open window. But it takes this big sort of struggle where we bang around into the closed windows for a while until we see the opening, until we find the freedom. So it's hard to say that that struggle that sometimes happens is not necessary. It is sometimes a part of our experience. 
<clears throat> it's sometimes how we learn, how we hone our skills at accepting the full range of our experience, accepting ourselves fully, and thus developing an ability to accept others fully, unconditionally. Unconditional, meaning even when we feel off track, not concentrated, not loving. Can I accept myself just as I am? Even when the darkest, most difficult stuff is coming up. This is a poem by a woman named Lala. She was a Kashmiri mystic in the 14th century. She said, Let them throw their curses. If inside I am connected to what's true, my soul stays quiet and clear. Do you think Shiva worries what people say? If a few ashes fall on a mirror, use them to polish it. So what if we thought of the difficulties that arise in our practice as the ashes. Can we use them to polish the mirror that is our true nature? Open, unconditional, clear, lucid presence. But this polishing is sometimes hard work. It takes practice. It is a practice takes a lot of practice. Michelangelo said, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful after all. He also said, genius is eternal patience. So quietly persevering bringing an even-tempered care to our practice, being diligent. All of this, I think, are, is expressions of patience. Coming into the hall to sit, continuing to practice, even when it's hard, even when we don't feel like it. Perseverance. The commitment to return over and over and over to the present moment. This can take patience. I'm told that Upandita Sayadaw once said, the road to liberation is paved with patience. Some of the other qualities of patience that support our practice are calmness, stability, So calmness can be that quality of stillness that we bring to practice, but also that deepens as we practice. And it can be an expression of patience. Not being rocked or swayed by all of the changing mental and emotional states that come and go. Just continuing to be present, continuing to practice opening to the moment, whatever it, ho- whatever it holds. And out of this comes a kind of stability. 
the balance, the equanimity that comes as we practice. As we see that these different shifts in energy and mood come and go, and we just keep showing up. We keep practicing. So we learn that we're not blown off track by every change of our internal weather. I also think courage is another aspect of patience. I remember in my first three-month retreat, I had a little notebook because at that time we would take notes on a couple of our sittings in order to be able to report on them during interviews. But occasionally I would use my little notebook to write down a certain word or words for inspiration. So I remember I wrote down three words big across the whole page. Confidence, patience, and courageous effort. To have courage to keep going, to have that sense of fearlessness, trusting or at least exploring the possibility of meeting our experience, whatever it is, opening to it. It's very empowering to practice like that. It's an aspect of courage. Think about what it's like when the opposite of patience is what's happening. When we just can't settle, when we're feeling impatient, it's not possible at times like that to stay with something, to stay with some painful sensation or difficult emotion. There's no calm, no equanimity, no balance. When this happens, self-doubt can sabotage our practice. Outside of retreat, in our lives, it's the times like that that we find ourselves reacting to family members, friends, coworkers. It's so painful, but that pain can be a real wake-up call, a real mindfulness bell of a certain sort. When we attune ourselves to when we're suffering, It can bring us back to the present moment, to paying attention, to seeing what's happening, to understanding it. It's such a gradual process, this learning to practice, to be present in this way. It's like, in a way, like planting a garden. We need to cultivate the ground before we even plant. That alone can take quite a while, and it's essential. It's really important. And then we need to sow the seeds. And then those seeds need certain conditions in order to sprout and begin to grow. And even before 
the little seedlings break the ground, even before we can see them. We might think nothing's happening, but growth is already happening. It's just beneath the surface. We can't yet see it. And then those tender little shoots appear, and we do our best to protect them and allow them to come to maturity, to flower, to bear fruit. All of those stages are essential. We can't skip the cultivation and the sowing and go right to the flower or the fruit. But we can keep in mind the incredible sweetness of the fruit to inspire us as we do that long, hard work of cultivation and sowing. Mahatma Gandhi said, I hold myself to be incapable of hating any being on earth. By a long course of prayerful discipline, I have ceased for over 40 years to hate anybody. I know this is a big claim. Nevertheless, I make it in all humility. That's a pretty sweet fruit, a heart that's free from the suffering of being contracted, of believing ourselves to be separate. And we taste that fruit now and then in our practice. It's really nourishing. Someone said to me in an interview once that this practice is all about Trust and patience. It's so true. So try to remember that as you cultivate the garden of your heart. I'd like to close with this passage from Sri Nisargadatta. All you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain in search of pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity. And discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. Sit together for a few moments.
Are you waiting? Let's chant the reflections on the share. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.